Chapter 9 of Mr. Wicker's Window by Carly Dawson. Recording by Arthur Piantadosi. In the kitchen, Chris leaned against the corner of the passage and kitchen wall to watch Becky at her tasks. How different from the compact white kitchen they had at home. And yet, there was a cozy feeling about the huge room in front of him with its ruddy copper utensils. Tub-sized wicker basket of vegetables, steaming pots hung over the fire, and the browning row of four chickens on a revolving spit that gave out a friendliness and welcome modern kitchens did not have. Becky finally paused in her work long enough to glance up from under her hat. Chris, Now then, my lad, tis not yet time to eat. That young belly of yours takes a bit of filling, and no mistake. Be off, you know, and do not be oh, a bothering Becky for a bit. I shall soon call you when it all's done. Chris would have liked to go outside and put his hand on the handle of the back door when a momentary confusion overtook him. He wondered if in going out he would step back into his own time before he completed the work Mr. Wicker wanted him to do. And suddenly unsure, turned away regretfully. Not knowing where else to go, he climbed the stairs to his bedroom. Becky had met his bed, his bed and the little room looked spruce. Chris walked into one of the niches made by the projecting windows, pushed up the sash, and leaned perilously out. This was to be the first of many such times that Chris was to lean out, so king of this new world spread out both follow him as far as the eye could reach. A vast and absorbing panorama lay beneath and beyond him. Immediately below turned Water Street, narrow and muddy, while the broad wharves and wooden storehouses spaced themselves at intervals along the shore. Beyond, the sailing ships of all kinds that he had admired that morning pointed their bowsprits along the docks or swung at anchor along the river. Chris looked down at the many vessels. He could not tell one from another, but names began to drift into his mind from some forgotten trip to a museum or from the passages of a book read long ago. Frigate, schooner, brigantine, good ships all. The creak of rigging sounded in the names, the harsh whip of salty winds, and the heart-lifting sights of white sails cutting across blue water. Chris leaned on his arm, his eyes shining. If he should ever go to sea in a sailing ship, what a day that would be. And then he remembered that he must do so if he were ever to obtain the fabulous jewel tree. All at once the dangers of such a quest were terrifying, and Chris turned his thoughts away from them to look at the view. Where the city of Washington lay in his time were only woods and marshlands, no monument, no Lincoln Memorial, no houses. Lying in the river like a great green ship, he could see the island which had once belonged to his ancestor, George Mason. Once? Now it probably still did. He could make out figures moving at the bank of it and a ferry pushing off from the shore. What fun this was! Here's David chuckled out loud. <laughs> what a chance! To see what once had been, he was enjoying himself increasingly as he glanced down at the activity along the river banks. So close to noon, the sailors and stevedores had vanished to eat their meal, and passers-by were few. The street was nearly deserted when along the mud-aired and runny ruts of Water Street, Chris heard a wailing cry, Pity the blind! Pity the poor blind! The boy looked down, and the drop below him to the road made his head swim until he refused to think of it. He saw below him a grotesque figure making its way, turning its head toward the houses as it made its cry. It was a hunchbacked man, and with a wooden peg leg and a crutch. Tied crisscross over his snarled hair were two black eye patches. 
He was unshaven and in a rare state of filth, his coat green with age and speckled with greasy stains, the stocking on his one good leg wrinkling down into his shoe, and his hands gnarled with long-handled nailed fingers. Risk gave an untoldly shudder. But the sight of the man held his gaze, for he'd never seen anyone quite like him before. As the cripple advanced slowly past a few houses of Water Street, here and there a window open was opened and a coin was tossed out, which the cripple held out his cap for, or grubbed with his filthy hands where he heard it fall. Watching his progress, Chris became fascinated with the accuracy with which the blind man caught the coins or found them when on the road. After passing gentlemen on horseback had tossed a silver piece in his direction, the hunchback made his way off around the corner of the stables beyond Mr. Wicker's garden. The boy hung out even farther and craned his neck to see what the blind man would do. For he, from his determined guide, he seemed to have a purpose. Feeling along the side of the barn to guide himself, when he came to the back of it, the cripple darted around and then, to Chris's amazement, lifted the corner of one black eye pouch and peered out from under it. Seeing no one, and thinking himself unobserved, the cripple nonchalantly pushed both eye patches onto his forehead fished in his pocket and began examining the silver piece he had just retrieved. It appeared to satisfy his scrutiny. Turn it over and over, though he did. But to be quite sure of its value, we bit tentatively on it with his back teeth. This seemed to be the final test, for the cripple grinned from ear to ear, disclosing even fewer teeth than Master Silly. Next, the hunchback sat down upon a heap of straw, laying his crutch beside him, and with a quick movement wriggled himself out of not only his jacket, but his humpback, too. Chris could scarcely believe his eyes, but he now saw that a false hump had been cleverly sewn into the jacket from inside. The cripple untied a patch that formed a trapdoor in the hump, and putting his hand inside the hollow, drew from its hiding place in the false hump a small bag tied at the neck with a string. Then, as Chris watched, he counted the contents of the bag, pieces of money that winked in the sun and added to his hoard those pieces he had begged that morning. The bag was then retied, replaced, and the jacket and hump put back on its wearer with evident satisfaction. But the cripple had not yet completed his work, holding the silver piece between the blackened stubs of his front teeth. With difficulty, he managed to hoist his peg leg over his good knee. Then, after darting many a sly look all about him, he unstrapped the wooden peg off the stump of his leg. From the interior of the stump, he pulled out an assortment of rags used for stuffing and to cushion the weight of his stump. Then, after spreading a torn banana shirt interchief after him, he zipped up the stump and from its hollow leg, out rained a shower of coins. Chris looked and looked again. Gold and silver money flashed on the rumpled handkerchief, and adding to it the last silver piece he had held in his teeth, the loathsome cripple stirred the heap around and around with one dirty forefinger. His mouth stretched in a cackle of green. After a while, he caught up the coins, counting them over not once but many times, and at last let them fall slowly one by one into the hollow peg of his stump, strapping it back securely. Finally, after looking about with his face close to the ground to make sure that no smallest coin had escaped him, the cripple replaced his eye patches and heaved himself up with his crutch under his arm, turning to make his way once more towards the dock and the ships. His wailing cry lagged behind him like a cur dog. Beauty the blind! Beauty the poor cripple blind!
Yet Chris now noticed that his head was tilted back to enable him to see under the patches as he went. The boy was straining to see him out of sight when the resounding bellow from Becky Boozer let him know that dinner was ready. Hastily shutting the window and running downstairs, Chris could only think of only one thing. Becky, he cried, bursting out of the bottom stairs, who's the blind man that just went by? The hunchback. Becky never even turned from the plate of his repairing. Oh, him? That would be Simon Gosler, one of Clackett men. How he can be a sailor beats me, but Clackett has hired him for years. Plague take him. Now, and she came toward the sunny table with a beaming smile. Eat up, young man, or I shall think my cooking does not please you. Chris hurriedly set about proving his appreciation. Mr. Wicker's Window, Chapter 9, End.